The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me as always are Maureen O'Connor, New York sex columnist. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. Today we're going to be talking about the great pickup artist, bete noir, Neil Strauss, who has a new book out in which he swears he's a changed man. Maureen spent some time with him, and we're going to be talking about him, his crazy revealing memoir, and also what we should make of the whole pickup artist community now, 10 years on or whatever. We're also going to be talking with Tim Murphy, author of a recent piece in our magazine about agender, aromantic, asexual kids at NYU. And we're going to be talking about the 150 tweet strippers, hookers, and guns epic that a woman calling herself... I, I mean, I'm tempted to call her Zola after Emile Zola, but I guess probably <laughs> Zola. Do we know? Oh, I think it is. I keep saying Zola, so, but I like Zola. Um, <laughs> unloaded on the internet last week in what may be the weirdest internet story of 2015. But on to our first topic. What are we supposed to think about Neil Strauss? Maureen, you hung out with him. You also wrote a piece that's up on the cut now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you fell in love with um, Neil Strauss? Yes, he won me over. Well, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about the whole thing. Um, but so Neil Strauss, of course, is the man who 10 years ago, he was a very successful music journalist, and he wrote the book The Game, in which he embedded himself with the then underground community of pickup artists. And The Game, you know, was massively best-selling. It turned is sort of what brought concepts like negging a woman, you know, insulting her to break down her self-esteem, social sleep with you. Things like that sort of entered the mainstream through Neil Strauss. So he's probably the person most associated with it. So after the game, he wrote the game, The Rules. He made an online academy that people pay to get seduction advice from him. He has a board game. He had a reality show. Like his face is on so many things, um, teaching people how to win over women. And then 10 years later now, he comes out with his book, The Truth, which opens with him checking in to sex addiction rehab. So sort of a bizarre, strange shocker, but the craziest thing about it is that everything actually gets more shocking from there, and it ends up being this crazy, crazy sexual memoir. I honestly think, like, he should just be Augustin Burroughs. Like, it's nuts. On the first page, it's like, when I was, like, a young boy, I went looking for porn in my father's closet, and what I came across changed my life, and it's like, his mother's disabled, his father's an amputee fetishist who made videos clip like highlights clip reels of his mother falling down that he showed his pervy friends all the time he comes to the realization that he was in an emotional incest relationship with his mother because his mother so hated his father she asks neil to murder his father once like it's just insane it's crazy to me he never did therapy either like this is like his therapy yeah Yeah. so he finally like yeah he checks into sex rehab to make his like bikini model girlfriend not leave him they're like doing their like their circle i flagged the <laughs> the passage in which he tells his life story and like the room goes silent and everybody's like, holy crap, that's the guy that taught us how to pick up chicks. It's just crazy. And he's like so openly like, yeah, looking back on it, I guess like this is why all that happened. The other really amazing thing that I think dropped out of a lot of the coverage is that he actually, even though it opens with him going to sex addiction because like uh, saying I'm a sex addict because he knows how to be splashy. He actually comes to the conclusion that he doesn't really think he's one now. And I think we have that clip. Um, I, this is me interviewing him at a fairly noisy restaurant. Um, apologies to all that the sound isn't better on this. Do you think of yourself as a sex addict now? No. No. But, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I'm not, I don't. <laughs> all I know is like going to sex and rehab was like one of the most life-changing things that ever happened to me. 
still don't know if I was I thought it was sex yeah. addict. Don't have a problem with it now in any way whatsoever. Uh, but it doesn't matter. Something. But I definitely had some sort of intimacy disorder. Definitely all the en- enmeshment stuff was true. And as far as the sex addict, I don't know. I mean, I suppose by some diagnosis, I don't know. And yeah. I, maybe it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. Had you ever done therapy before? No. I really, I really thought. Yeah, I really thought like I really thought I was normal. Like despite, <laughs> despite like all you know, despite like my bibliography of stuff I've written or you know, like I really thought like I was normal. I thought I was the guy who was the normal person who observed all the crazy people and wrote about them. Um, but yeah, but, but yeah, I was wrong. <laughs> but you were wrong. So now, do you think you're the crazy guy? But so, did you like the game too, or is this like a better? So book I hadn't read the game until after this. Uh-huh. My understanding of the game was super negative. That I was always like that ruined gender relations for my entire generation. Yeah. Of that, like, I think one of my girlfriends was like, it was like the death of male charm was the beginning of the game. Yeah. I mean, are people still nagging us though? Like, are I don't people think... still using pickup artist tactics out there. Well, it would seem something that's like less relevant in a dating app era than in like a pickup yeah. bar era. Yeah. I think it's a relic first because there's that element that people are just sort of, we're in an era now where you just put your cards on the table, you know, that there's the idea of like trickery to get somebody to be with you seems just sort of silly. And then the second thing is it's amazing how people like um, Neil Strauss, Tucker Max had sort of a reform turnaround. He wrote a book about how to be like a better man for women and how to make like be the man that a woman wants to love. Um, all these guys sort of have these turnarounds and they're really of the zeitgeist because I think that in the 10 years that passed, it's become extremely inappropriate to use a term like there's this term in the game cave manning, which is when you get extremely sexually aggressive on a woman like a caveman. I mean, those are things that are just completely unacceptable in the mainstream now. And I don't know how sort of manipulatively or consciously they're doing it, but I do think these guys on some level are following the zeitgeist and realize now's the time to get in touch with yourself and repent and be a male feminist. And here, here we are. I know. Instead of pickup artists, we have like real male feminists. We do. Like, just as bad. Not just as bad, <laughs> but like equally as grating, right? <laughs> I know. It's just a sheep in wolf's clothing. Right. Yeah. They call them, what is it? Like not a fuck boy, but a soft boy. That's like... <laughs> like a male fe- a pickup artist in male feminist clothing, kind of. Oh, I'd never heard yeah, that. New slang. But I'm going to use that. Yeah. Thank you, Allison. <laughs> sure. So you don't think his conversion is genuine? You just think it's like he knows how to talk out of both sides of his mouth? Uh, I don't know if he knows that he's talking out of both yeah. sides of his mouth. But, like, I mean, it's that to me that I'm like, he's like a brilliant memoirist. But unfortunately, or I mean, fortunately for him and, like, his wife in their mansion. But, like, he was a really raw, crazed memoirist who thought he ought to be a self-help guru. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, maybe they're all like that. I know, but yeah. the other thing that I'm like, maybe just every other self-help guru isn't as honest about how deranged they are. And so he's just... So as like, soon as like the game is, like as early on in the game, he's talking about how deranged he is, or just in this book he's talking oh, about Oh, in it. this book he yeah. like comes clean about the derangement. In the game he's just kind of like... I'm a nerdy guy. I feel really mixed about this. I don't know how I feel about treating women this way. And he gets to the end. He falls in love with a woman who's like impervious to his game after he like sleeps with a bunch of, you know, that's a pretty perfect chicks that he has no respect. Of course, right? Um, and then what happened in real life is that then she cheated on him and she was, I think, the drummer in Courtney Love's band or something. Uh-huh. She was like glamorous, cool chick, but like too cool for him. But then in real life, she like very publicly cheated on him and like left him for another musician. It was like all over page six back in the day. I like went back reading the through clip. all this. Yeah. Yeah. 
But it's also so cheesy because the thing is, as he was in sex addiction rehab, like if you look at the timeline, which I asked him about then, and he's like really like doesn't like to get into, but like he was in sex addiction rehab when he was still making thousands of dollars from guys spending a single hour at his like style life dating seduction academy. So that's and that side that I'm like, his board game literally came out during a time when he was celibate. And was he like still like picking up? Tricks using his tricks or whatever, like all through this. Um, so he goes to the condition rehab. He comes out of it. He's like celibate for a while. He tries to be good, and then he's um, tells his beautiful blonde Mexican bikini model wife, who's actually very talented because she also designs bikinis, <laughs> not just a lingerie yeah. model. Um, she's very ambitious. Um, yeah, and then he's like, "Babe, I gotta find myself. I've got more of a journey to go on." She's like, "You go on your journey. I can't be with you." And then they separate, and he tries to become a swinger. And then he comes out of it after like having like one too many dicks swing at his face at orgies, being like, "Fuck, <laughs> Ingrid, come back!" And then the bikini model comes back, and they fall back in love. Her name is Ingrid. Ingrid, yeah. Oh it's really like out of like an eighties, sh- like a shitty. It's so amazing. Yeah. But the thing about all of this is that's so crazy, but his mother is still more interesting than, like, anyone he's interviewed, anything. She's still alive. Yeah. He's so hard on his mom in this book. And I'm like, your father filmed her falling down and gave it to his friend yeah, to jack off to. Jesus. Of course she's crazy. Did she knew that? Shit's insane. So he discovers it, and then he's the only one that she ever talks to about it, because he found it, and then she talks to him about it. And, she tell- and so apparently growing up, she just talked about it incessantly, about her fears, and she's like, I think he's secretly filming me again. Don't let anyone take my picture. At her at his wedding, she was like, I'm only coming if you promise me the cameras will never take my picture. I'm so afraid if anyone takes a picture of me, your father will like use it. Or like people wow. will laugh at me. She's so terrified. Well, it seems to, even more than it being an especially wild story. It just seems like it was told really well. Because yeah. a lot of people have like fucked, come from fucked up families. But it just seems like... It's that it you... delivered so hard that yeah. it was like, Neil Strauss gets raw. And I was like, oh, right. And yeah. you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> Another funny thing. So I interviewed him at this restaurant. Afterwards, he Wait, had an which event. Um, this place in like Sunset Park. It was very odd. <laughs> um, and afterwards, he had an event for his fans. All these guys that I interviewed joined the group because they loved the game and they wanted to follow Neil Strauss and learn his ways. Um, unbeknownst to them, he went to sex addiction, you know, rehab. He comes out of it. They're still part of the society to learn how to pick up women and improve their lives. And he starts actually... And he's a good enough guy that he'll play along and keep yeah. teaching. Yeah. And he literally brings <laughs> in his, like, the therapist he worked with in sex addiction rehab to, like, work with these guys in the society. And the most amazing thing is now all these guys... Um, are kind of like, yeah, you're right. It's time to get enlightened. Wow. It's time to learn how to really find love and love yourself first. Is Neil Strauss making the world a better place? It was the most amazing thing is that, I mean, some of these guys, they, they did this like almost like group therapy session at this event. And, you know, people are raising their hands and he's like, tell me about your mother. And they talk and then he like opens up the floor and, you know, there's one guy that's like, I'm really struggling to find a girlfriend who meets like XYZ standards. And then Neil's like, but maybe, you know, what if she had, like, all but one standard? Maybe your standards are wrong. And then somebody else takes a microphone and is like, or maybe you just aren't, like, up to the standards for yourself. Do you really love yourself? And it was, like, this crazy, <laughs> totally unexpected. All these guys were like, damn, I love Neil Strauss because I get laid. But you know what, Neil? If you say that I should find myself, maybe I will. But Allison, you seem skeptical that he's... Crazy uh... force of personality. You know, I, when I first started reading the book, I was kind of just... You know, like you can't see it right now, but I'm making a violent jerk off motion. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't buy it. I thought that the like 
the game was so so hilarious, but also so just like insidiously mm-hmm. toxic. And of course, I mean, yeah. like in college, I think I even tried pickup artist. I tactics. think I even. You're not sure. I think right. you're sure, I think Allison. Like, just the things like the neg were so like deeply ingrained in the way yeah. that like women treated men for so long that I I didn't think there was anything redemptive about his story at all. Mm-hmm. I and like that, that you go one sentence. You say this insidiously toxic, and the next <laughs> sentence is, and I've I've done it. <laughs> I was hoping nobody caught that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is. Um, There was, like, this phase when, I mean, granted, I was also, like, in college when it came out, so it was, like, prime, that every time you went to a bar, every single guy would show up and insult you, (laughs) and, like, it was so horrible. So we've been talking about Neil Strauss and his new book, The Truth, which you can read more about at The Cut now. The Kids These Days. A few weeks ago, New York Magazine published a giant big campus sex issue, a sort of cover-the-waterfront collection of dispatches or whatever the appropriate journalistic cliche is. Um, One of the more newsworthy pieces of the package was a story by Tim Murphy about a new movement of kids who define themselves as agender, aromantic, and asexual. Tim's here with us to talk about it, and thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me. Maybe to start, you could just tell us a little bit about how you found these kids and what interested you about them and how they were choosing to live their lives. Yeah, well, I think I kind of put a a call out to various LGBTQ uh, organizations at uh, universities and colleges around the country, asking them what the front burner issues and projects were in their centers because I was in New York, it was easy to meet face-to-face with a bunch of students from the NYU's Queer Union. You know, I mean, queer itself, I mean, I wouldn't even know what, like, the official definition of that word is. It's sometimes used interchangeably with LGBT, but some LGBT people don't consider themselves queer and vice versa. I've always understood it broadly to mean people who felt, in terms of sexuality or gender, they were somehow outside um, the hegemony or, like, the mainstream norms. And these kids Um, who you were writing about in this piece were especially that way. I mean, even outside of the center of trans community, right? Yeah, well, they were were mixed. I mean, I think that was really, you know, we how we started was we went around and I asked everybody how they defined themselves, you know, what they called themselves. And the, the language used was just so diverse, you know. I mean, I think the one young woman, or I shouldn't even say woman, actually, because I can't even remember now how, you know, everyone is very particular about, you know, whether they use the term man, woman, cis, trans. And all the pronouns, too, right? One student was, like, uh, defined they selves, because that's another big thing now, too, is pronoun usage. You know, like, a lot of people don't want to use he or she, so they're actually using they as a singular. I believe one student called they self, like an agender demigirl on the non-binary spectrum. And I mean, I have, ne- you know, I've never heard You're like, what are those words terminology mean? <laughs> put together quite that way. So everybody had, you know, it very much felt like an atmosphere where people were free to um, find the language and the terminology that worked for them and how they were feeling about who they were at this point in their lives. Can you give us some examples of, you know, some of these worlds? Like demigirl was a word I don't think I'd ever heard of before, demisexual. I mean, honestly, the thing is, this was a learning experience for me. Like, I've written about transgender issues and interviewed, you know, countless transgender people in the past five to ten years. But 
the whole idea of being like aromantic and asexual was as a sort of a self-identified chosen or this is what I am. It wasn't entirely new to me. You know, quite frankly, I guess I always thought about asexuality as a, you know, something is being repressed or, you know, you're not in touch with some aspect of yourself. But like the students who define themselves that way didn't see it that way at all. Also, you know, very prevalent is the idea that all these pre-existing ideas we have about what it is to be a man or a woman or gay or straight are all socially constructed, you know, and these students felt like they were really trying to uh, get past that. They would talk about gender not as a continuum with M or F on either end and, and there being somewhere in the middle, which is how, you know, I've, a lot of trans gender or gender queer people have kind of defined themselves to me that way in recent years. But they were saying they didn't even see it as a continuum and they didn't even want to be anywhere on that continuum. They wanted to be completely outside of gender. But it's interesting. A lot of the terms they use are quite narrow. I mean, it's, you know, to say to say that you're asexual is different than saying I don't want to be talked about on the spectrum I've inherited from some earlier generation. I want to be understood only on my own unique terms. There's, there's still, it's, I mean, to me anyway, it seems like they're still choosing to define themselves rather than to embrace some more open way of identifying oneself. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like, I don't, I don't fully, I don't have a full grasp of what it means to be aromantic or, or asexual. I, you know, I was very curious. I, I said, I asked some of them who define themselves that way if they felt that they would be that way forever. And they said yes. Wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was funny because even in asking that, I felt a little bit like, you know, people who ask LGBT people right. if, if they're, it's just a phase, you know, like, do you think this is something you'll grow out of? <laughs> and they saw it as a sort of core part of their identity, not something that they were, yeah, not something that they were figuring out or doing in response to something that had happened to them. Yeah, as they as they talked about it. I think what the story didn't focus on was that because, you know, I'm 46, so I certainly remember a time where coming out, you know, even just as gay or lesbian, never mind transgender, was could be quite hard. I guess I thought because they were so young and because it was 2015, like, for the most part, I, they would tell me that their comings out were went pretty smoothly. And that was that was, certainly was the case with some of them, but it really wasn't with others. I mean, I was really uh, struck by what a hard time some of them had had, especially, the you know, ones with gender identities that didn't fit their family or their school or their community, and how much, in some cases, even physical violence, and then otherwise just a lot of rejection, you know, like, family rejection or school rejection, and how some of them who felt that they were not fitting into gender norms didn't even want to share that with their families, you know, like their families knew that they were, say, lesbian, but they didn't really want to tell their families that they didn't feel like they were a woman. I was really struck. There was one comment about how many of these people said that when they were, you know, teenagers, they found this sort of array of like words and language and ways of describing the way they felt or didn't feel through Tumblr. Um, and yeah, I guess I'm just curious about sort of where those words come from and how people are finding them. Well, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I think, you know, some of that language was created by, by theorists like mm -hmm. Judith Butler. You know, like her book, 
uh, gender trouble. A lot of this language was created. And I think what's so interesting is that now that we have this, like, diffusion of, of platforms like Tumblr, I mean, that her book has been chopped up into little um, memes, you know, like those little quote plaques that we see mm-hmm. everywhere now. And... And like yeah, of and all they, of all the texts that you can imagine being like gifified, it's like Judith Butler is like seems I, it's, hard it's one amazing. to pull off. It's amazing yeah. because I mean I never thought that you know reading those reading that theory in college twenty five years ago, I, it always seemed so like ivory tower like cloister to me. Like it never seemed as though it could ever come you know kind of break out into a more accessible uh, platform where a lot of people could be introduced to it and could start trying on that language, you know, as a way of, of describing themselves. Just to have the technology to pass that language around really quickly among tons of people around the world advances ideas of what it is to be human, you know? And it seems like it's not just access, it's something a little more active than that. I mean, if you're cutting and pasting language on your Tumblr, that's a bit different than just discovering a book that really blows your mind in a library somewhere. I mean, you're really you're literally playing with the terminology that, um, you know, that others have um, introduced rather than just encountering it in some more passive way. You know, like so many of these people seem like they're coming you know, straight out of high school with this really sort of sophisticated way of looking at gender and sexuality. It's interesting to me because these definitions also seem to always have a certain like theory of gender or sexuality baked into them. Like the like neutral, I think when I was looking was um, a term for a gender that I saw in your article. And when I looked it up, the like main website on it was saying, well, it's acknowledging that like everybody's gender is extremely unique. So it's sort of like a definition that has a theory within it. Right, 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 exactly. And I had never even heard that term until I actually went to look at the actual mm-hmm. list of, of gender options that Facebook has made available, and that was one of, like, the 57. Right. And I had never even heard the word before, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's not like we tend to think of Facebook as this, like, remarkably progressive. (laughs) The avant-garde. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But it's young, I guess. Of all sort of topics on sexuality, I feel like I've seen the level of sort of not outrage, but disdain that people have about sort of like, oh, these kids, they think they're so special. They get to use all these special words. It's sort of remarkable to me because I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I guess I'm just wondering, did, did you notice that? Or is that was that sort of a sentiment among the people you interviewed? Well, I mean, most of the people I interviewed for this story were, I mean, I did, I interviewed a few academics, uh, you know, including those who identify somewhere in the LGBT including Judith Butler. We, we went back and forth over email a little bit. And um, I think, you know, who are, who are older than, mm-hmm. than the students and the undergrads, they're maybe roughly my age or older, so in their, like, 40s, 50s, 60s. And, um, you know, it's funny. I think there are two minds. You know, I think on one hand there is that, like, oh, these crazy kids, you know, with their new language. Mm-hmm. Um, I think on the other hand there's a feeling of gratification that, you know, language and ideas that they pioneered 25 years ago are actually like coming into a kind of mainstream fruition. I think it kind of boggles their minds a little bit, you know? Thank you. This is a topic that I've just been curious about, but never, I don't know, I feel like never had like an end to approaching it. So I'm really glad you were able to come sort of talk it through with us. Oh, sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks again. And uh, I don't know, see you around sometime. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. 
So we've been talking about identity-free identity politics, Tim Murphy's great story on NYU's asexual, agender, aromantic undergrads, which you can find on nymag.com. Now let's move on to our last subject, Zola. So this is such a saga, I don't really even know how to begin. Allison, oh, would you? God, so, <laughs> Where so to begin? much happened. Um, so long, long 150 tweet story short, this woman who goes by Zola, <clears throat> she was a Hooters waitress, and one night she's working, and this woman comes in with her sugar daddy, and they start talking, and they both figure out that they're both strippers, and like they, they really like each other, and the one woman, Jess, um, was like, hey, Zola, like, come down to Florida with me where I can make a lot, you can make a lot of money stripping in Miami. And Zola's like, yes, sure. I think the quote was, we were vibing on our hoism and whatever, getting along. Mm. And so they decided to take this trip to Miami to, to strip for a couple nights in a, a nice club and make a bunch of money. They get down there and like, I don't know if you guys have seen um, Showgirls. It's like that on steroids, like meets like a, it's like a buddy comedy meets like a stripper road trip like gangsta murder saga that unfolds in this like very captivating tweet ah. sequence. Um, she's like such a good writer. She doesn't even understand <laughs> just, like how naturally she's a great storyteller and so funny. Um, so in the end, they well, no, you, up... I, in the end, you skipped over a lot. They, they get turned into basically they start turning tricks. Right. But Zola objects to how Jess is that the other girl's name? Yes, Jess. Jess is being pimped. And so sets her up with, like, her own back page right. ad. She's like, Jess, you're not charging enough money for your pussy. It's worth $1,000 at the least, which is really nice. I thought very supportive. There was of, a feminist strain yeah, to the whole like, uh, like sister's you know, kind of. Works, yeah. you know? They kick out the man. Well, they don't uh, totally kick out the man. You can't really kick out the pimp here. It's oh. Like a, that's a problem. But they, they do kind of go around him. And they set her up with a backstage uh, what is it called? Backpage, Backpage. Backstage is the musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> Audition pages with a backpage. And then all of a sudden she's making so much money. I think she made like five, just made like $5,000 at night. Um, Zola did not turn any tricks. She just turned into like, like a the madam. The female the madam. Pimp, yeah. yeah, the female pimp. Um, but then Jess, like she had this boyfriend who was bipolar, Jared, who kept calling her trying to like, he didn't know she was turning tricks. So you have Jared kind of bugging out. You have Jess's pimp being like, why aren't you giving me my money? And then he comes and takes all of her money because Jess, again, doesn't know her own worth and just hands oh. it over to him. Um, and so then the next night they do this again where, you know, Zola sets up Jess's back page again and she starts making money. But it takes a turn where she gets kidnapped. Well, I would say for me, the emotional turn was when her boyfriend who like finds the back page oh, ad and then puts it on Facebook. On Facebook, yeah. So that her mother Oh my god, so there's a public shaming. Yes, her mother who didn't know she was a stripper or a Even a stripper. Even let a stripper. Alone. But even a pro- like finds out. And she has a little kid, so now she's, you know, freaking out. Right, her she, mom had been babysitting so for her this yeah. week. It's wow. really there were a lot of characters. I kinda of find it hard to keep Well you know straight. what? I find that really impressive. I feel like there are some novelists that can handle many that many fully no. fledged characters and at a time. Zola did such a beautiful job explaining everything. It was a great narrative. Um, was she already like a Twitter famous person? No. Mm-mm, this is like what it also it had this tale. super memorable opening where he was like, "Here's the story of how me and this bitch fell out." Right. Just like, uh. and then you don't know what it's gonna be, and it's this. It was such a gift from like the internet gods. It has been very polarizing. I shouldn't say it's just like a strange Well, it it gift. did it did strike me actually as being sort of I don't know if I would describe the text itself as being racist, but the response to it, it has some really uncomfortable racial politics, yeah. wouldn't you say? On Black Twitter, 
the the response was kind of like this woman is a genius like get her a book deal she's like a hero um there were some reports that ava duvernay had like optioned it already <laughs> yeah right kiki oh palmer the actress was like i'll play zola like on twitter but then on on like in more mainstream media it was kind of more like oh my god this like this like sassy stripper haha more like laughing at her versus with her and then there was some kind of talk of like feel really bad for like this like poor black sex worker and like it just got like complicated it's very complicated yeah and the the part of it that struck me was like people just swallowed it they were like oh this is like a basically a plausible narrative if extreme and i think there was something a little fucked up about that like about buying it right you're like oh yeah there are all these people who are running around in precisely this kind of a world where they're like whatever like um, prostitutes turning tricks and pimps and guns and like right just like an average day in the life of like yeah you know like three black people there was another account started um by a woman claiming to be jess and like the, the minute she started tweeting so first she had an instagram account that said like here's my twitter i'm telling my side of the story so of course like dun, dun, dun. she had zero followers within 15 minutes she had like over a thousand um and people are watching her tell the story so it starts off like Pretty much like in parallel with Zola is like. Are Zola little... and Jess talking to each other too? No, no, they're not friends uh, anymore. Yeah. Oh, that's you know, where the story falling out. Out. You know, We fell out, right? <laughs> so she's telling the story, and everything's kind of like in line with how Zola was telling it. Um, some details are different, like you know, Zola's like lives with her mom and wasn't so confident, and like yeah. really liked hot Cheetos, like little things like that. And then all of a Who sudden, doesn't like hot Cheetos. Everyone loves hot Cheetos. Anyway. <laughs> no. But all of a sudden, like around tweet like 54 it was like and then beyonce showed up and we're like what <laughs> like what's uh. happening and then like five tweets later and then like beyonce invited us on the photo shoot two tweets later it's like like and here's the problem with social media you see how like all your like hungry people were just breathlessly hanging on to everything i tweeted that is obviously false and like now you've made two strippers like got them publishing deals like like don't sleep or something like that but basically like, you guys are idiots this has all been fake Thanks for watching. Like now, I'm famous and mm. and see. How did you feel when that happened, Allison? Delighted. I mean, <laughs> come on. And that's it for Sex Lives. <laughs> Our producer is Sam Digman. Thanks also to uh, Tim Murphy for coming on, and to Henry Malofsky and Laura Mayer at Panoply. For Marino Connor and Allison Davis, I'm David Wallace Wells. We'll talk to you next time, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.